across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Conditions. <laughs> And what would Saturday afternoons be without a bit of tequila? You are tuned into Flavour, live on Cambridge 105 Radio with Alan Alder and myself, Matt Bentman. Now, sadly, Sue Bailey can't be with us today, but let's have a quick rundown of what we're covering. Alan? Uh, yeah, a big story nationally is food shortages, partly caused by the weather in southern Europe and North Africa. But there is a big problem with British-grown food too, also partly caused by the weather, but there are other reasons for it as well. And this is causing some big producers to actually abandon growing fruit and vegetables altogether, and we'll be looking at that. And we'll be finding out from Dave Fox of Trumpington Allotments about the effect of weather on home and allotment-produced food, and what we can do to protect our crops. We've lots of food news too. We hear from Richard Stokes of Finboys in Mill Road about their new fish-free venture and Francesco Genovese talks about the new venture at Aromi in Bennett Street. And we celebrate winter cheeses and the parsnip with some delicious and straightforward recipes from local chef Alex Rushmer, Rosie Sykes and Tina Rush. On to our first feature now. The National Farmers Union this week said that rising costs, including those of fertilisers, feed and energy, along with labour shortages, are among the reasons for a fall in food production in Britain. And the weather is another factor. I spoke to Simon Steele at Cambridge's Sunday Market. Simon farms between Littleport and Downham Market and sells his produce at Ely Market on Saturdays and Cambridge on Sundays. And I asked him about last year's weather and its effects on production. It was the weirdest and the greatest contrast in terms of weather that I've known since I've been growing. It just seemed to go from one extreme to another through the year. Uh, and, and just that length of summer and the heat, right through into the autumn as well, really threw us out. And, and rainfall? Very low during the summer, like everybody. Um, we had quite a wet spring to start off with, and then it suddenly went the other way, and then it stayed dry right through until late autumn. So what's been the effect of that on, on your produce? We really struggled during the summer to get stuff to establish and grow and it, it was just without irrigation we were we would have lost far more than we did so yeah it was, it was just a it was a constant learning curve because normally you get a two or three week hot spell which we've had before it's not unusual but then you get a cold spell you get a, you get a, a good thunderstorm and it writes itself last year it didn't it just kept on staying hot and hot and hot right and no rain and you can't irrigate everything. So what sort of things suffered them? Um, a lot of the overwintered crops, the wintering crops, the overwintered carrots, the parsnips, the sprouts, the winter cabbage, and then the purple sprout in brock and the spring green. Normally, we just give them a little irrigation to get them established when we transplant them, and then they have to look after themselves for the, for the rest of the year. 
and in in a normal year it's fine they, they they'll they'll you know they'll they'll poo long until the autumn and then the autumn they'll get a good growth as it cools down and everything's fine but this year because it, the autumn is so hot and dry they never really got going in the autumn either so we 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 have really struggled with the winter crops and then we had the the frost of the minus 10s for two weeks in in november which uh, did us tremendous damage again because everything was was quite soft still because it was still up to 30 degrees in october if i remember rightly and then it went to minus 10 and that's quite a massive difference yeah, so did you lost a lot we lost a lot yeah god how terrible the heat and the drought all put great pressure on local farmers, but some suffered worse than others. Simon got off better than many, as he explains. So you get notification that, that there are going to be restrictions. The restrictions first start as you're unable to irrigate a couple of days a week, and then it becomes you can only irrigate at night, then you can only irrigate for three nights a week, oh. then it's... <laughs> complete ban. Right. And, um, and is that what it came to last yeah, year? we had a complete ban last year. We stayed with our licence for longer than some people. Some people out Marchway on the Old West were banned completely in July. I mean, we didn't get banned completely till October. So we, oh, we really? were... Right. But we were on two nights only a week. Yeah. So if there's less produce, the prices go up. Yeah. A lot? It will have that, yeah, with the overall increases of, of everything else, as everybody else is having, Absolutely. There, there will be increases and there'll be shortages as well, but there's already shortages coming through now. Um, like? With the, with the lack of labour availability to some of the big growers, uh, there are some of the big guys in Lincolnshire, etc., big supermarket suppliers, are actually either coming out the job altogether or reducing their, their output. And that's also because of labour as well. And then labour as well. On top just, of the weather. Yeah, yeah. The lack of, yeah the, so the increase in production and the, the lack of available labour. So that's one of the reasons why food price inflation is higher than other types of inflation, yeah. then, is that sort of double whammy. Double whammy. And yeah. I was going to supermarkets are always having their margin as well. Yeah. So, and they're not passing on a lot of the increases in costs back down to the growers. Uh, so I'm told, anyway. Yeah. Uh, they're just keeping it more and more, as they are with, as they were with the eggs. Why? What were they doing? Well, they were doing. They were increasing the price of the eggs, but they weren't actually paying that down the line to the farmers, which is why there's a shortage of eggs, and hence we're now importing eggs because right. they put the prices up, <laughs> but they weren't actually increasing the money back to the packers or the, the yeah. original suppliers. And that's happening with vegetables as well. And that's happening with vegetables yeah. as well. Yeah. It's amazing what so goes they, on. They always had their margin. <laughs> I'm sure they do. They always had their margin. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Simon. Right. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Simon also mentioned that while 40,000 seasonal farm workers from overseas are permitted to work in Britain, one of the four companies that's allowed to provide these workers had its licence revoked by the government because too many of its workers were applying for asylum. 
As a result, by law, all its workers then had to leave the country, which caused further increases in labour shortages. And alarmingly, the result of these difficulties is some big food producers are pulling out of growing fruit and vegetables and growing wheat instead, encouraged by the fact that the price of wheat has gone up recently from £80 a tonne to as high as between £160 and £240 a tonne. And the reduction in supply of fruit and vegetables that results will force food prices higher still and increase Britain's reliance on imported food and therefore decrease our food security. Now, earlier in the week, Cambridge 105's Julian Clover spoke to David Rose, Professor of Sustainable Agricultural Systems at Cranfield University, about another food issue. The current shortage of imported foods such as tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers, as well as the problems facing British growers and the actions of supermarket chains, about the whole issue of food security, in fact. Professor, there must have been bad weather in Spain before. I know I've been there and it's bordered rain. Um, So what's changing to our supply chains to make this a problem? Uh, You're right, there has been bad weather before and bad weather often affects the food being produced and can cause shortages. I think on this occasion, we've got a little bit of a perfect storm of a a number of factors that have made made the bad weather in Southern Europe and North Africa much worse. So the big thing, as you've mentioned there, is the, the cost of production affecting British farmers. So we are out of season for many of those items you've listed, peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes. We rely on imports from overseas. British producers, though, do produce small quantities of tomatoes, etc., in glass houses. Um, so we do have some home supply, but farmers with the cost of living and the cost of energy haven't been able to grow as much because the retailers haven't been able to pay them or have, have wanted to pay them the real cost of production because retailers are concerned about passing on the cost to consumers who themselves are struggling with the cost of living so farmers can't afford to produce some of the tomatoes and other crops at this time so that combined with the bad weather elsewhere has created this perfect storm and i think we have other factors at play too like brexit which is is causing some disruption extra admin extra paperwork that perhaps affects the uk differently to some other parts so of that's Europe. that's compounding you know problems which you've outlined very well there and the you you add in if you like the, the brexit layer for for want of a better description and that and that impacts things further so are, are we saying here that presumably there's other other nearby countries, perhaps uh, the Netherlands or Belgium, who might also be bringing in some uh, fruit and veg from Spain and North Africa. But, of course, they don't necessarily have those Brexit issues. Yeah, I, I think it's not just Brexit. So there are shortages that have been reported in Ireland, for example. I think there's probably the two factors of prey, that the Brexit probably has an influence when supply chains are stressed Uh, a a producer is likely to try and go to the market with the least barriers and with the extra admin and extra paperwork, the UK is probably suffering a little bit. Also, as compared to the continent, we know that the UK has seen rising energy bills at a much higher rate than the rest of Europe. So growers in Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Germany 
don't have as high energy costs as British growers at the moment. So that compounds a problem again. So they can switch on the heating and the greenhouses and not worry quite so much about how much it's going to cost. And whereas uh, a British farmer or grower might be thinking to themselves, well, maybe I should leave it a couple more weeks because the sunshine will do half the work for me. Uh, Absolutely. And I, I do think retailers do also need to look at themselves. I appreciate the narrative that they don't want to pass on a higher price to the consumer because they are struggling, but they can't expect not to pay farmers and growers properly for the food they produce. If they were paying higher prices to producers, they would be better able to switch those lights on and switch the heating on and and grow more produce. It's interesting because we're here on a, I'd say a semi-regular basis over the past few years about the price of milk, about the pressures that some supermarkets are putting on on dairy farmers. And I guess this is a variation on, on that issue. Uh, absolutely. And some of your, your listeners might have noticed uh, for the last few weeks a shortage of eggs in the supermarket as well. And again, there's lots of factors at play. There was your know, bird flu lots of other factors, but that also comes down to a cost of production issue. Many poultry farmers are saying, just as dairy farmers say, if if retailers aren't going to pay us properly for the food we're producing because they're suffering rising costs, then we can't produce it. We we can't take on more hens. In, we can't turn the, the lights on or the heating on in the glass houses for tomatoes. So retailers, I I accept that there is a cost of living crisis and they don't want to put the prices up in the shops because prices have gone up. But I think they also need to look at their own profit margins and think, can we squeeze a little bit out of them and pay producers a bit more? Or uh, government policymakers are going to have to step in, and this is what the National Farmers Union called for yesterday, and provide better support for businesses to deal with rising costs. I was joking earlier this morning that the government needs to get the COBRA committee together, but but actually you do kind of feel that it does need some kind of government task force, or maybe there is one which is looking at our food security, which is a, seems to be a new word which has uh, emerged into the dictionary, and something demonstrated by the issues with the tomatoes and the cucumbers right now, which is of great importance if we're going to be eating a reasonable diet. No, no, I agree. And, and and it's just a personal opinion, but at the National Farmers Union conference yesterday, the Secretary of State seemed rather lax and rather casual in how she was addressing these issues. She put things down to market failure and, and almost acted as if there was nothing the government could do to help. Well, there is. Um, and you're right, it is an urgent issue. So that there's no one we need more than a farmer. We need a farmer or a grower three times a day to eat. And if there are short-term and also long-term pressures, as there are, uh, we will have pressures in the summer again when we have lack of seasonal labour to pick fruit and veg and other crops. Uh, This is a really important issue that needs an intervention. The government last year or year before asked Henry Dimbleby to produce a national food strategy. There were some terrific ideas for how to enhance food security in the UK to help our producers grow more, to to solve supply chain issues, etc. Much of that hasn't been taken forward and we really do need both a short and a long-term vision for improving our food security. That was Professor David Rose talking to Julian Clover on Cambridge 105's Breakfast Programme. And you can hear all of that interview on the Listen Again section of the Cambridge 105 website. And Professor Rose will be talking about food security at the Cambridge Festival next month.
But there is good news. There are actions that we as consumers can take. We're able to support local farmers and pay them a proper amount for their food. People like Simon Steele on local markets and Sweet Pea Market Garden. News about their salad crops coming up in the news section, by the way. And there are local farmer's markets too. Also Flourish and Duncan Catchpole's Cambridge Organic Food Company, who both do box schemes. Flourish has its farm shop near Hildersham too. Its produce is also on sale at Meadows in Eltisley Avenue and also in Mill Road on the corner of Ross Street. And, of course, there's the Radmore Farm Shop in Victoria Avenue too. So, who needs fruit and veg from supermarkets anyway? <laughs> Indeed. On to our first news break now, and let's begin with some healthy stuff. First, did you know there is a croissant swim club and it is inviting you to a wild swim in the cam followed by a coffee and a hot croissant at Maison Clément in Derby Street. The date is the 11th of March and the time 9am. Meet at Dead Man's Corner in Grantchester Meadows that's just past Skater's Meadow as you go out of Newnham towards Grantchester and if you use what three words, the three words are stable, apple type. The second piece of healthy news involves local chefs Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern and Maurizio of Maurizio Dining in Mill Road are both running the Cambridge Half Marathon on the 5th of March to raise money for Cambridge Sustainable Foods Food Justice Programme and you can donate to each of them via the GoFundMe website. They're posting their training on Instagram, it's worth a watch, let's hope they raise plenty. And if all this talk of healthy pursuits is making you want to sit down and have a rest, while you're at it, you could read Van der Lyle's Alex Rushman's new piece of writing. It's part of his 52 cookbook series and is well worth a read. It's hilarious and it's good to know that such an accomplished chef does the same things wrong as I do. In it, Alex is cooking a recipe from the cookbook of London's much-missed pit queue. Uh, you can find it on Twitter at Just Cook It. Over to Congratulations Corner now, and big congratulations to La Maison du Steak, whose 10th anniversary is next month. And to celebrate, they will be offering 20% off your entire bill and a free glass of Prosecco, and that's from the 20th to the 26th of March. So, book well in advance. And the 10th anniversary of Aromi is coming up in April, so congratulations to them. There is news from Aromi too. Here's founder Francesco Genovese. Uh, it's quite a different experience uh, to what Romis uh, or people are used to to a Romy because at the moment you're used to uh, a Romy more like a coffee shop but then we finally managed uh, to open as a like more like a restaurant type of experience like a proper pizzeria so in the evening every day from 6pm to 10pm uh, and Friday and Saturday we actually close at 10.30 you will be able to take a seat you have a nice brand new menu in front of you where you can choose from uh, wonderful starters uh, cocktails uh, from the apple spritz uh, to the classics uh, brand new pizzas uh, brand new menu uh, dessert including our fantastic and delicious delicious artisan gelato uh, to uh, limoncello you know the, the whole thing basically and then a waiter comes to you takes the order and the kind of usual experience that you will have in a restaurant. So again, this is something that our customers have been asking us for for years <laughs> and I'm pleased that it's finally happening and has been extremely successful and we have had some fantastic uh, feedback uh, and uh, it's going really well so far. Again, 
it's a different pizza so it's not the pizza slice uh, i like to uh, make that very clear you have a whole pizza just for yourself so it's not the typical round uh, pizza uh, that you would expect in a romi we like to keep things quite unique and uh, a bit different uh, so it's slightly bigger but more like on the oval side and you will be surprised once you you see it with fantastic ingredients our chef our head chef uh, was able to even um, recover the mother east from sicily uh, so in here the dough is quite different you would see it's very uh, light but at the same time uh, crunchy it's uh, um, the good thing is once you, although the portion is quite generous once you eat it uh, you don't feel uh, the feeling of the dough expanding inside of you or the feeling that you need to drink and drink and drink because it's very digestible and absolutely uh, delicious Okay. As always, our ingredients are uh, focused on the Sicilian kind of uh, cuisine. But we, we tried to experiment with lots of kind of new uh, kind of ingredients. We brought back uh, our kind of spicy nduja as well, uh, which is kind of very popular in the in Italy, in the south of Italy. So no, so far we've been uh, uh, overwhelmed, and uh, you know we are happy to be able to offer that to them. And that was Francesco Genovese of Aromi. And that is the last of the news for now. More later in the program, including a new fish-free launch from Finboys in Mill Road. I'm free. I'm free. And now details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and today's look at Olio for Cambridge shows us that Leela on Hawkston Road has six ripe bananas to give away, ideal for banana baking, she says, and a box of matchmaker's chocolate orange too. Meanwhile, Stephanie in Trumpington is giving away a pack of unopened vegan Parmesan cheese, whilst Sing Ten near the Fitzwilliam Museum has some gluten-free flour and xanthan gum for anybody who wants to collect it. There's plenty more things available too, by the way. This is just a little brief selection. So if you want to see more, check out the Earlio app. I mean, I missed out on Blue Stilton and Baguettes this week. Who gives away Stilton? <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, and another free app uh, called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Uh, uh, rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, and that's instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Now, there's a new branch of Meadows open for its first day today, that's Saturday, and it's on the corner of Mill Road and Ross Street. If you don't know, Meadows is a shop that sells a large variety of high-quality foods, including fruit and vegetables, cereals, teas, coffees, chocolate, and, of course, cheese. Here's owner Susanna Watson talking last year to Sue Bailey about cheese, how British cheese almost ceased to exist at one point, and the pleasures to be found in winter cheeses. The rationing in the Second World War pulled farmers' production into making food to feed the nation and to divide all that food as, as fairly as possible, which meant that farmhouse cheesemaking was effectively no longer legal. You had to declare your milk and give it into a uh, cooperative food production that would be shared out through the rationing system. So that's really what caused a huge decline around the 40s and 50s. That's interesting because no other country had that same sort of thing, did it? No, it was very much 
part of the sort of national decision process in, in how to, to feed the nation during the Second World War, specific to the UK and the government. And then, of course, we had the rise of the sort of supermarket and processed cheese, didn't we? Yes, so from that time, really, um, there was a reduction in the number of people actually making cheese. Um, and so the only cheese really available was that that was coming from co-ops and became more suitable for sale in the supermarket. And so suddenly farmhouse cheese has got back on track, though. What, what, what started that up? That, again, sort of came about as a result of the, the supermarkets, in a way. Any farmers who'd stayed in dairy production very suddenly found that their milk, their liquid milk, reduced in value as the milk price dropped significantly. And so people who wanted to stay in dairy farming began to diversify and take the sort of the value of their milk back into their own hands by using it to make another product. And so we saw a huge rise in small farmhouse production, not just of cheese, but of things like yogurt and ice cream around that time, which would have been sort of late 80s, early 90s, that it restarted again. Now, in fact, would you say, obviously we don't have as many different types of cheeses as, as France, for example, has, but how many artisanal and farmhouse cheese makers are there in the UK now? I think there's about six or 700 at this stage. Actually, what's interesting is that we do have a big diversity of small farmhouse production. In fact, more variety by name than there is in France. In France, you would have um, probably more farmhouse producers, but with quite a few farmhouse producers making the same cheese, for example, Reblochon and Tom de Savoie and things like that. There's more than one maker making that cheese, whereas here, individual farmers have created their own recipes, each with a, a single name. So in fact, we have got more variety in number than we do in, than they do in France now which is quite an unexpected turn of events, really. That's really impressive, isn't it? Because I was reading somewhere recently that Yarg was one of the earlier farmhouse cheeses, and that was actually the name of the producers spelt backwards when they came up with this idea of surrounding nettles around the cheese. Yeah, it sounds like an old sort of Cornish word, but actually it is the, the cheesemaker's name, which is Gary, spelt backwards. Given that we're sort of in the winter months coming towards spring are there sort of special other cheeses that you'd recommend more for this time of the year yeah so there's two different approaches you can take to looking for the cheeses that are going to taste good in early spring as we continue sort of effectively through the winter until march april time the first of all there will be some new season goat cheeses and sheep's milk cheeses coming into the marketplace again, having been out of season through the autumn and winter months. And that's because the the young goats and baby lambs are born any time from January and February onwards, and so their milk becomes available. And so by mid-February, we should have some new season, fresh cheeses coming back into the shops again. And then the other thing that we like to do at through the winter months is eat the, the mature hard cheeses that were made through the summer 
either last summer or even 18 months ago in the previous summer. And so the farmhouse cheddars and any of the hard cheeses that age well for that much time will, should be tasting really good as they're either sort of 18 months old or six months old because they will have been made using really lovely summer grass. They will have matured for enough time to be tasting really good right now. And what about blue cheeses? Is that the same for those as well? Yeah, so what's lovely about some of the blues is that they age, again, they age really well for about six to eight months. So our Stilton, for example, which is a big favourite through Christmas time, will still be eating well through the early months of the year because that will have been made, again, from outdoor grazing through the spring and summer and they'll be tasting really good too. And it's interesting, I think people forget about the seasonality of cheeses. Absolutely, like it is really interesting to think about how old the cheese is and what would have been happening when it was made. And actually there are some recipes that work really well with winter milk. So things like Vacheran Montdor, for example, has always been made just through the winter months because it, it actually suits um, when the cows are eating dry food indoors and so they're eating hay. Those sorts of recipes are actually really tasty through the winter months as well because they were always designed to have been winter cheeses. So what sort of cheeses, um, sort of by name, would you recommend and ones that you sell at Meadows? I think we would look out for some of the spring goat cheeses, things like Centola from Ireland, Finnerden Hill from Oxfordshire, those are some nice fresh ones that will be coming into their new season soon. Uh, Stilton and our other British blues like Stitchelton and Pevensey Blues are also going to be eating really well through the next couple of months. And then and the farmhouse cheddars as well. So at Meadows we stock Isle of Mull cheddar from Scotland, we have Hufford from Wales and then we vary our local um, hard cheeses so we tend to have either Lincolnshire poacher or Spark and Ho Red Leicester sort of in a rotation of because I like to have a cheese from the east of England as well in our in our cheddar selection they'll be the ones to look out for in the coming months. Lastly what would you recommend that cheeses should be eaten with I gather in France it's always suggested bread or walnut bread but we tend to use crackers in the UK which do you prefer and which do you recommend? I actually really do like cheese with crackers I think that was how I was brought up, but also I do like a, a good ratio of, of cheese to whatever the cheese is on. So with a cracker, obviously, you can load up with a bit more cheese. So I'm a little bit greedy in that way. It's always quite nice to have something else as an option as well if you don't want crackers. So cheese goes really well with nuts or with fruit, both fresh fruit or dried fruit. And chutneys and things, of course, are really popular. Personally, I actually prefer things that are on the sweeter side, so a jelly or even some honey is a really nice accompaniment for a saltier cheese. Mm. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh, 
That's right. Susanna Watson, whose new branch of Meadows opens on the corner of Mill Road and Ross Street today. Uh, coming up on Flavour shortly, we'll be getting some recipes from Alex Rushma, Rosie Sykes and Tina Roche. More news, including Steak and Honor's new pitch and Finboy's Fish Free Venture. And we're also talking with allotmenteer Dave Fox about how to survive the extremes of weather if you grow your own food. We're back in two minutes, so don't go away. Cambridge 105 Radio In 1960s Cambridge, the Rolling Stones performed at the Rex Ballroom, Chris Farlow was on stage at the Alley Club and Helen Shapiro played live at the Regal Cinema. On Sunday mornings, John Gannon takes you back to the swinging 60s with music and memories. John Gannon's 60s scene, Sunday mornings at 8 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. And welcome back to Flavour, where we've talked a lot about the weather today, but one vegetable that seems to have survived everything the British weather threw at it is the parsnip. And here is Alex Rushmer with a recipe idea for parsnips, and apologies to those listeners out there who are looking for recipes for turnips. Parsnip is a, is a fantastic root vegetable. It's one of those things that people don't fully appreciate, I think, how sweet it is. And until uh, until we started making sugar or importing sugar into this country, parsnip was actually used incredibly often in, in sweet preparations because it has a very high natural sugar content. There's a, a restaurant um, near Bury St Edmunds called Tudnam Mill where they make an amazing parsnip dessert, a parsnip cake with roasted parsnips, uh, which is which is fantastic, really good with, um, with salted caramel and toffee flavours. For a more savoury preparation, I used to make, uh, and still do, it's one of my Christmas, Christmas recipes, a parsnip soup. So very, very simple parsnip soup, lots of, uh, lots of butter, lots of cream, so it's very rich, it's very decadent. Um, but instead of, instead of finishing it with, with cream or butter after it's been cooked and blended, a little bit of white chocolate uh, is very, very good with parsnip, just to enrich it, just to bring a little bit of sweetness. And that cocoa butter and the parsnip works really, really well together. Right, you say just a little bit, because you can overdo chocolate, can't you? You know, people add chocolate to stews in a sort of South American style. Mm. It's easily overdone. Uh, so do you have to be very cautious? Or yeah, you do. And, more forgiving? and uh, you're absolutely right. You've, you have to be very careful adding white chocolate, more careful than if you're adding dark chocolate, which has a natural bitterness. There's no cocoa at all in white chocolate, much more naturally sweet um, so just add one or two buttons at a time and then when you get that richness when you get that sweetness just beginning to come through that's the point at which you should probably stop and not add any more 
Oh, that sounds good. Uh, right, some more news now. White Cottage Bakery's annual trip to Tuscany is almost sold out for October 2023. So next year, Helen has decided to add a spring date, and you can book via their website. Uh, there are some events featuring Corinne Paye of Gourmandies coming up at Market House in Cambridge's Market Square. On the 10th of March, Corinne will be running a shoe pastry class and on the 17th of March, a tartlet baking class. Both classes start at 10am and you book on the Market House website. The Gransden's new farmer's market starts on the 26th of March and it will be held in Little Gransden Village Hall. Uh, Good news for lovers of Café Foy at the quayside. They're getting ready for an early March reopening. Now, there's some interesting produce around. While tomatoes and cucumbers may be tricky to get hold of at the moment, Culinaris in Mill Road has a very attractive variety of kiwi fruit called Ruby Star. And Shelford Deli has Tarocco Fire, a particularly sweet blood orange. And Sweet Pea Market Garden has spicy winter salad mix and some rocket that's available now. Just message Adrienne by noon on Sunday if you would like a bag. You pick up from her farm between 2 and 4 p.m. on Sunday or from Harvey's Coffee House on the university's Sidgwick site on Monday from 8 till 5 p.m. Finboys has announced a new fish-free supper club starting in April. Here's Finboy Richard Stokes with the details. We're going to open on a Monday, probably the third Monday of each month. Um, we're going to start in April. And it will just be something different to what we normally do. So, so the first one we're penciled in is a French bistro evening without fish. So it'll be a no-fish dinner. Um, so it's a pop-up within Finboys. That's the way we're looking at it to start off with. So it's just, just, just evenings. You know, whether, it, whether it's Spanish food, Italian food, a fast food night. Monday nights also, down, down Mill Road, when you do come down here. No one's really open on a Monday evening. It's, it's very, very quiet. So, yes, we're looking at, at starting off around the 17th of April, probably be the first date. And then from there, we'll just see where it takes us, really. But when you say French bistro night, what, what sort of stuff? Riettes, terrines, um, lots of baguette, um, nice butter, um, rabbit, probably stuff, you know, bound ham, parsley and garlic. Some classics. Um, we can't do steak frites because obviously we don't have a fryer here, but... Um, yeah, we'll just have some, some classics and, and just pair that with, with French wines as well. So that's going to be, definitely going to be the first one. Jay's heritage, particularly working at Bebendum and Shea Bruce and that, you know, is very strong with the classic uh, French cookery. So that's where we're going to start and see where it takes us. And you used to work at uh, Alice Walters Shea Panisse in, in Berkeley as well. I did so. a stage there, uh, yes, uh, a stage there as well as a slanted door in San Francisco. I say French, but Mediterranean French probably more so, um, as well as Italian and Spanish. So, yes, it should be quite good fun and, you know, just something different for just to, to bring some customers in on a Monday night who wouldn't normally come to us because they, a lot of British people are still not keen on fish or fish bones. So, yeah, just to bring, bring a different clientele in and, and give some people some options down the road on a, on a, on a Monday evening, as I say, because many places are shut. Chef Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, has a pop-up at the Cambridge Bar Hill Hotel on the 5th of March. It's tickets only, and you can get yours by emailing steve at theforagingchef.co.uk. The cost is £50 for five courses. Hidden by Padini in Willingham has its next Italian supper club on the 10th of March. Bookings are now open. And we've more news coming up shortly, including wine news and steak and honours new pitch. First, though, here's Rosie Sykes, followed by Tina Roche with some more parsnip recipes.
I just love all the winter routes. I think autumn, winter is a, is a lovely, exciting time, very different from summer. But I think parsnip and nuts go really well together. Parsnips and goat's cheese are wonderful together. But I created this recipe just to do something slightly different, and it's a cake. So it's almost like a carrot cake, but instead of carrot, you use grated parsnip. And there's an interesting flavour profile in parsnip, which is quite close to coconut. So this cake I created is made with, instead of butter, I use coconut oil. So a simple creaming method, instead of butter, use uh, coconut oil. I cream that with some brown sugar and then make a very basic cake with some flour and eggs. Just look up a carrot cake recipe and instead of butter, use coconut oil and grated parsnip. And... It's really interesting how well they go together. Mm. They really, really go well together. So that is a lovely cake. It's got a little bit of cinnamon in it. So it's a lovely warm autumnal cake. And I've even served it warm as a pudding with some creme fraiche. Tina, any recipes for parsnips? So many, but I just think, you know, at the end of the day, if I could only choose one for the rest of my life, I just still think as an accompaniment to any any roast. I mean, particularly, you know, we think of it perhaps as an accompaniment to turkey, but, you know, any roast bird and just roasting it with a bit of molasses, honey, you know, any kind of liquid sugar. It is just so good. And as a leftover, I think the thing is they are so good that I always find no matter how much I make of it, there are never any leftovers because people go, oh, I'll just have that last piece, particularly when you have a a lovely caramelised bit, end bit to it. But if you do make enough to have cold leftovers, they make a stunning salad the next day with things like pomegranate seeds on top. Um, And you can put a bit of raw Brussels sprouts in there as well. So just shave with a sharp knife or a shave like a mandolin. But this combination of very modest sort of ingredients make a really, really cracking salad. So having leftover roast parsnips is just a delight, I think. Right. When roasting, there's uh, there's a a dispute in our house as to whether you parboil them and then roast them or whether you roast them entirely. Have you you a view on that? Yeah, uh, I I know exactly why you're having that debate. I I think that we're so used here, I think, to thinking of our roast potatoes, which we are very, very sort of uh, unique in making. You know, no other European country makes them like that. It would be roasted from cold and you get a very different result. So I think partly is that we kind of think, well, parboiling has got to lead to something good. And, and it, it does, but I actually think that usually you don't want to spend too much time perhaps cooking, you've got enough you know, stuff to do with other things. I think they cook just as well, roast just as well. As long as you have some kind of emollient you know, with it, I, th- I think they're just as good roasted raw. Don't even need to peel them, in my opinion, particularly mm-hmm. if they're organic, just chuck them in. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. On to our final news roundup for today. Steak and Honour has a new pitch. It's at the White Lion in Sawston and it's on Wednesdays from 5 till 8pm. Order in advance on the Steak and Honour website. Levante Kitchen has a pop-up, a casual evening of fresh pasta and wine on the 3rd of March at Meadows 213 Mill Road. Bookings can be made on the Levante Kitchen Instagram bio and bookings close on the 1st of March. Uh, Histon Smokehouse is offering two for the price of one on burgers this coming Wednesday and Thursday from 5 till 9pm and there are half-price cocktails in the early evening too from Wednesday to Saturday and at Sunday lunchtime. 
Bushelbox Farm in Willingham is planting three new varieties of apple tree this year, bringing the total they grow up to 42. The new ones are Chiver's Delight, Queen of the Realm and Winter Gem. Good luck to Pimp My Fish. Uh, they're in the final three for the awards of the best mobile operator in the country at the National Fish and Chip Awards. Uh, the judges make their final decision this coming Tuesday. OK, on to some wine news now. At Amphora in Devonshire Road, there is a tasting of Burgundies on the 1st of March, a tasting of Sherry's on the 8th of March, sparkling wines from around the world on the 15th of March and natural wines on the 22nd. You can book on the Amphora website. Prices are between £35 and £40. And on the 12th of March, there is another of the very popular collaborations between Amphora and foraging chef Steve Thompson. At the wine rooms in Hills Road on the 2nd of March, there's a tasting of red wines from unexplored Italy. On the 9th of March, tastings of Pinot Noir from around the world, Lebanese reds on the 16th, and on the 29th of March, there's a special New Zealand menu and wine night. On the 16th of March, Cambridge wine merchants will be having a whisky tasting with more than 60 whiskies from 16 distilleries. It's in the Pitt Building in Trumpington Street and it runs from 5 till 9pm. Tickets are £25. On now to Dave Fox, allotment here at Trumpington Allotments. I asked Dave about the weather we've had over the last year, what its effects were and how to help your crop survive if the extremes of weather continue. So the craziest year yet in my in my growing experience. So we, we we had a we had a very wet winter, then a dry spring, and then a long hot summer and drought. And that, that summer included two dry, two days around thirty nine Celsius, and it was extremely dry. It barely rained here at Foster Road allotments from April to July. My allotment neighbour Pete was has got a rain gauge at Co Farm where they did have a good shower in June and got 10 millimetres. That day we got a quarter of a millimetre here. So, you know, you can't assume that you're going to get the showers. And I think we got particularly unlucky here. We did have some rain from mid-August and autumn felt sort of normal. And we had no frost until December, which in itself is unusual. But then, as you probably recall, there was a long, cold spell. Um, There was a deep freeze in mid-December after snow and there were several cold spells since, each of which would have been notable in a, in a, in a normal winter. Um, but yeah, exceptionally, exceptionally cold. But during that very cold spell, the average temperature was below zero for 11 days. The maximum was below zero for six days. And there was a two-day period where it was around minus eight. And I think that was a real killer for a lot, of, a lot of plants. Well, I was going to ask you, what's the effect of all of this weather oh, been? Well, I mean, it's a double whammy for a lot of the annual veg, you know, things that um, you require to germinate, get established and crop within, within one season. So the dry, the dry spring, even before the real heat hit us, the dry spring prevented germination of things like carrots. So if I'd have known what was going to happen, I suppose I would have watered intensively to get them going but you just sort of tend to assume there's going to be some rain coming and it just didn't come as I say until, until August um, similarly the parsnips were poor the brassicas which we planted out in May they were very poor we were we watered just to keep them alive they didn't do much significant growth the root the root growth was poor and so yeah poor crops for most of the brassicas squashes were poor cucumbers were bitter 
Um, we did get some cucumbers that they uh, you often find bitter cucumbers if you leave them on the vine too long but most of the crop was bitter there was other unexpected things i've never seen before like scorching on the south facing side of tomatoes and apples well on the fruit yeah absolutely yeah um which i assume came during those couple of very very hot days on the other hand uh, tomatoes chilies um top fruit in general was quite a good crop I wish I'd grown aubergine or me- even melon, yeah. watermelon. Actually, <laughs> funnily enough, I was just looking through my seed packet and here, here we are, just in case you think it's going to be a similar season again. I've got aubergine, watermelon. I never thought I'd ever buy watermelon seed and several types of um, chilli and, uh, and peppers. Um, the reason I've got the chilli and peppers out is because they need sowing fairly early, as, as do the aubergines, actually. So I've already got them going in seed trays. The strawberries did quite well. However, after the first flush, I, my main crop strawberries dried out and I think quite a few of those have died, particularly mm. the older plant. Um, I'm still waiting for a little bit of new, new leaf to come and if that doesn't happen in the next month or so, I shall, I shall dig them out. Um, my carrots eventually germinated and you know what, I'm still harvesting them but they're not very big and they're not very sweet. At least it's a, at least it's a crop. So we had a lot of plants that were weakened by this, by this hot, dry summer. And then the second whammy came along, which was the December cold snap, which has killed all of my purple sprouting broccoli and most of my Cavallonero kale and weakened quite a lot of my other overwintering brassicas. Um, I've never lost purple sprouting broccoli before, and it's, it's a plant I've grown for 24 years, so that's that's a quite a surprise and, and, and really quite shocking. Um, yeah, I had some Romanesco cauliflowers, most of which I lost to the freeze. I managed to save one of them, but um, there was, <laughs> you know, so I, as I say, I think it's the I think it's the dual effect of, of heat followed by followed by cold, extremes of extremes of both. I'd sown some broad beans in early November, the usual, the usual method, aquadulce variety, supposed to be winter hardy, so they came up. And then I did, I did a second sowing a few weeks later, so late November, and they were not up when the hard, when the cold spell came. The first lot I've lost completely. It's quite common that you get a bit of frost damage on those early broad beans, but I've never lost a crop. Yeah. But given that weather has over the last few years become more extreme Mm. something you've mentioned several times actually what can we do if we want to carry on growing our own food i mean are we now going to be growing aubergines i think it's even more important than ever to grow our own food because of course you know other parts of the world are having extreme conditions as well i mean the the shortages that are currently being reported from supermarkets are largely due to poor conditions in southern Spain where a lot of our imported fruit and veg comes from at this time of, at this time of year um, so some things I think we can do um, successional sowing um, so for example I lost one sowing of broad beans but the second the second one have partly have partly survived and if I'd have made more successional sowings perhaps more more will have more will have survived Right, um, so successional sowings, you you don't sow all of the seeds at one time. Yeah, you, you yeah. Divide your packet an into interval. three, and, and then right. and then do just just so they've got a got a chance if some if some really bad weather does come along. Um, for 
helping plants in case it's very hot and dry again um, more compost in the soil anything that retains moisture any any, any humus rich material um, manure uh, soil conditioner from from water beach um, leaf mold anything anything you can get um, and then also mulching on top so when you get as you're getting plants established mulch around them and that will keep the moisture in the soil and grow a wider range of crops you know i'm sort of half joking about the watermelon but you know it, it might it might it might work um but also at the other end of the of the scale brussels sprouts so there's one winter brassica which did okay despite these um desperately low temperatures that that, that killing minus eight um left my brussels sprouts alive one variety went a bit limp and didn't do so well but then the plants were fairly weak in the first place because of the summer so yeah so um a wider range of plants Uh, also crop protection so you know get so if you if you if snow is forecast if you think there might be a long cold spell then get something over the crop it's only probably only going to be a few days and then i always say this to you alan but more perennials because plants that are well established that are going to be there for several years at least or 50 years in the case of a fruit tree they've got better stronger root systems and they can put up with this so i'm quite confident my asparagus is going to do okay you know despite everything um i'm hopeful for this for the strawberries I mean, apple trees look as good as ever pears plum uh, quince medlar got decent crops off all those devote a bit more of the land to perennials so that we're not so reliant on annual crops because it's the annual crops that are going to suffer in these extreme weather conditions yeah and you can get perennial versions of some annual plants can't you i mean can't you get things like is it tree spinach yeah and there's perennial kale aren't there so yeah why, right. why not yeah i mean how perennial they're going to be in with the extreme conditions i don't know but yeah, yeah a, in general a wider range of a wider range of vegetables trying so it's more flexible being more flexible isn't it it's well, being think, more flexible so, about yeah. what you grow yeah, and well, your yeah. succession sowing being more flexible I, I think so, yeah. when you sow. but also, and also be lucky <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, we may well have a very normal season coming up. I, I would quite, I would quite enjoy that. You know, I mean, trying to produce crops in extreme conditions like this is sort of fun for me. It's like a challenge, but the professional growers who are having to put up with this is their, it's their livelihoods. You were telling me that Simon's um, lost a lot of crops, and I really feel for anyone in his position. Um, it's extremely worrying. Thanks very much, Dave. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and that was Dave Fox. Uh, and before we leave Trumpington allotments, here's Dave again with an important tip. Yes, yeah, so and my topical tip is that as soon as the weather warms up, end of February, start of March, the Allium leaf miner fly will be on the wing looking for your onions and your leeks and your garlic. So cover it with a fine mesh. Don't delay. <laughs> There's the music signalling time for news from social media. Yes, just a bit today. Uh, Histon Smokehouse is taking bookings for Sunday brunch. That happens between 9.30 and 2.30 and tomorrow with live jazz. And also half-price cocktail specials from 1 till 3. And tonight at the Bank Micropub in Willingham, The Wandering Yak is there from 5pm. You can order at order.wanderingyak.co.uk. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Familiar green onion signalling the start of our job section. Uh, Cambridge Wine Merchants has a full-time vacancy for their Bridge Street Wine Bar. It's a 40-hour week and training is provided. Send your CV with a covering letter to winebars at cambridgewine.com. Now here's a quick roundup of other vacancies. You can apply via the company's website or pop in for a chat at a quiet time. There's a vacancy for a head chef at the Town and Gown in Market Passage and they also have a vacancy for a sous chef. A head chef is needed at Gourmet Burger Kitchen. There are several vacancies for chefs at the Granta in Newnham Road. Scott's All Day is urgently looking for a sous chef. Pay for that is up to 35k. A sous chef is needed at the Carpenter's Arms in Great Wilbraham. Market House has several vacancies for a chef de partie. Pay is from 24k. A chef de partie stroke sous chef is needed at the Red Lion in Grantchester. Tzatziki, the Greek restaurant in Mill Road, has a vacancy for a chef de partie. And finally, a Romy needs a chef able to make fresh pasta in front of guests. And there are several vacancies for this role. All of which brings us to the end of today's programme. And you can catch Flavour on Montana Saturdays at 12 noon. We're repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And Flavour will also be available as a podcast early next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is the Gadget Guide with Robin Lawrence. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 11th of March with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. So until then, goodbye. goodbye.